Good morning, South Florida. Welcome to Saints and Sinners Unplugged. Uh, I am Pastor Ken Jones of Glendale Baptist Church, and I am joined by our co-hosts and colleagues and dear friends and brothers, Pastor David Menendez, Pastor Aldo Leon, and Pastor Jose Prado. In our last discussions, we've talked about legalism uh, and neo-nomianism. So what we've tried to do is kind of flesh some of these terms out. And so we want to continue that discussion. Legalism is the means to be justified before God on the basis of keeping his law. Neonomianism is the creation of new laws. And it's not just a person randomly saying, well, hey, we need some new laws. What it is, it, it flows out of a misunderstanding of what God's law actually requires. And then we go into either practices or precepts and we enforce upon them divine authority without having the authority to do so. Uh, some of them are, are very logical and they come from a good place. Uh, for instance, last week we talked about uh, warnings against drunkenness and people understand the dangers, ravages of, um, of, of alcoholism and the damage that's been done to individuals as well as families. And of course, uh, everything from drunk driving to abusive behavior that comes from an overconsumption of alcohol. So therefore, to restrain alcohol use is obviously an act of wisdom, but it becomes a new law when, to, when one says that to have a drink or to consume alcohol is a sin. And please, Absolutely. don't hear us saying that yep. you, if you, if it's against your conscience or for health reasons that you please. choose yes. not to smoke and you yeah. choose yeah. not to drink, yeah. don't hear us saying that every Christian ought to. That would be legalism on the other side. That would be us trying to force something on your conscience. But here's what we're saying, because um, these things are assumed to be against the law by so many Christians. We are saying that the Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. What it forbids is drunkenness. And you can say, well, then if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. Okay, that's cute, but it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, what do we do with Jesus turning water into wine? Oh, that's right. It was not it alcoholic wine. Yeah. It was it was it was, <laughs> it was it was the the those who participated in it said that it was yeah, near beer. Yeah, the, the, those who drank it said mm. it was better than the first stuff that was served. So, let's not, you know, let's not take it to a level even if your personal preference is to abstain. And it may be wise to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in some context. Yeah. But, uh, but neonomianism neo plays itself out very clearly in those two categories. I think in church, when we take uh, practices, any practice, mm -hmm. and we raise them up to the level of biblical principle. Well... Yeah. I, I had a brother that told me a number of years ago uh, about the whole issue of homeschooling. And we have people in our church who homeschool. We have people who send their kids to parochial schools. And then we have those who are in public school. But this brother, number one, he referred to public schools as government schools. Okay, I, I get that. But there was something attached to that. And then he said that it's sin to send your children 
to, to public schools. And man, whether you agree with the state of public schools or not, you really need to back up on that and, and be careful of what you're saying because you're assuming that the, per, the Christian or the, the non-Christian who sends their children to a public school, that they are not bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You are assuming that they are not teaching their children and, and filling in the gaps for whatever may be wrong in a public school setting. So right. there's, there's some dangers. There's as many dangers in neonomianism as there are in legalism. And the, the funny thing is, we don't hear people throw around the term, well, you're a neonomian, uh, <laughs> but we hear all the time you're a legalist. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think another one that is when we oversimplify a particular application of a biblical principle and therefore replace the principle. For example, you know, um, say, all right, I'm going to have daily um, singing session, explaining of the word. We're going to have catechisms. And all of a sudden now, they have just realized you could be catechizing your kids, singing songs to your kids, and not doing what you should be doing. Yeah. If, you, if, you have, if you have minimalized biblical discipleship to a hour of activity and you have not broadened that to saturating your kids with the gospel in everyday life you're not doing what you think you're doing you know or, or even like someone flushes out like you know the ephesians 5 principle of love your wife and they say well that i'm gonna do a date night right and all of a sudden now to love my my wife as christ of the church is equivocated to mm -hmm. be date night yeah another and if you one. don't have a date, a date night one, yeah. and so yeah now we ha now we, we so what about um what we would call uh means of grace uh, i don't call them spiritual disciplines but mm -hmm. uh, uh well i'm glad you mentioned yeah. spiritual <laughs> disciplines so spiritual because that's on my list <laughs> so i was going to say spiritual disciplines a lot of times they become a new law well but we make it we we need to make a distinction and this is one of the problems that i have with some people that I consider very dear friends on this issue of spiritual discipline. There is a distinction between the, the appointed means of grace. I know we've done a program on uh -huh. the means of grace. And the means of grace, what has been understood historically by the church, are those things that have been appointed by God as means by which his grace in Christ is communicated to us. Those things specifically appointed by God himself. And that's why it's relegated to the sacraments and to um, uh, the preaching of the word. And I would extend it, according to Paul's logic in, uh, in Ephesians 4, um, vibrant, vital Christian fellowship. Because he says each joint is knitly joined together, which each joint supplying strength to the other as it, as it does its part. So whether it's spiritual discipline, what you're saying, these are folks that are trying to live and trying to stay in keeping with the zeal for God that they think pleases God. However, it's without knowledge. And the text also says in verse 3 that they are trying to attempt it to establish their, their own righteousness. righteousness. Yes. Whether it's for salvation or whether it's because by doing this, I am going to get some type of blessing out of that. In mm -hmm. other words, if I, if my wife stays at home, that's going to guarantee that my children are going to turn yeah. out all right. Right. Yeah. If, if, if I am the head of the household and I do these things, it's going to guarantee that yeah. 
So there's some type of misunderstanding of the knowledge of God, which for us would be in terms of law and gospel and all the implications of that, mm-hmm. that they have missed. Totally agree. And, 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 and like you said, they, they begin in a good place. And when you look at the spiritual discipline, things like uh, quiet time and meditation and journaling, things of that nature, those can be very productive. They can be helpful, but oh, my day yeah. didn't go right. I didn't have my quiet time. I don't know. Luxury. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. got, you got, if, if, if you're really, you're if you're really spiritual, you got to yeah. drive a crappy car, live yeah. in a crappy house yeah. and, uh, you know, and drink like, you know, Folgers. You can't go to Starbucks. <laughs> No, that's, no, you, you shouldn't even drink Folgers. Yeah. <laughs> no, Folgers is no, but that's reality. It's, your own it's, coffee it's, beans. it's all of a sudden now that, that, that spirituality yeah. is not yeah. powered by, by the gospel to love people yes. where I'm at. Yes. Yeah. It's either radical stripping yeah. of myself of things that God doesn't even ask me to strip myself of, or this radical additions that aren't necessarily explicitly mandated. And all of a sudden now, like a mom lives at home, has a husband, goes to church, as neighbors feels like she's a subpar Christian All the rest or, of yeah, or, yeah. or she feels super spiritual because she is staying yeah, at home. That's yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's the other side. Yeah. That's yeah. the other side too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's, wouldn't you say that um, what we've seen over the last 30 years, especially on the political spectrum and the involvement of the evangelical right is the politicizing of the neo-nomianism that is dormant among so many evangelicals? which is why I know in California they had um, a Christian voter's guide, which I hate those things. Mm-hmm. You know, a Christian voter's guide as if there is a Christian way to vote. And the assumption is that if you vote either a particular party or on a particular way on a certain issue, then it's not the Christian vote. What yeah. is that? Other than, it's, as you yeah. guys were saying, that you know, being without the knowledge of God we've gone, or the, uh, a knowledge of the law of God, we've gone about to establish our own. But as Jesus says, what we end up doing, and this is essentially what neo-nomianism is, is that we teach the law of God as if it were a mere tradition of men, and we elevate the tradition of men as if it were the law of God. And, and let yeah. me just say to our listeners that um, we're not saying that there aren't things uh, that are wisdom issues. Absolutely. You know, that's a good distinction, if, by the way. If you, uh, if you have made a decision that you uh, abstain from drinking, if you have made a mm-hmm. decision that uh, you will homeschool your children, if you, we're not saying those are bad things. No. Uh, what we're saying is that when we add those things to God's law as, as a means by which we now feel we are basing our relationship with God on, on those things, um, that, that's... And, and that's, that's at, one, really at one level, bad, and then at another level, we're not saying either that there are definitive uh, rules and commandments Absolutely. that indeed are mandatory. That govern how that, we are that, to that yeah, function That govern parents, how we yeah. are to yeah. function. Um, yeah. And, yeah. This is super relevant for us. The law of competency and fruitfulness. Mm. Wow. There is this attitude in the, in the modern church that if you are competent, that that is some sort of measure of, of biblical yeah. spirituality. Yeah. And, I, and the, the, re, the real reason we ought to pursue excellence yeah, yeah. Uh, to but the yeah, glory yeah. of God. And, yeah. and, and if, if, how, could you, how could you have a problem with that person? They've done so well. They're so confident. Mm. 
Yeah. You're talking from the standpoint of, of their personal lives. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, like, we, we don't see quality biblically as yeah. someone who, you know, the kingdom of God is not righteousness, joy, sure, and peace in sure. the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We see it as yeah. competency, yeah. fruitfulness, and success. Yeah. And, and it, it becomes another That's why. another law for righteousness. That's you know? why James chapter 1, one of the illustrations that he forefronts is let the lowly brother... Um, glory in his exaltation and let the rich glory in his humiliation but but the gospel is embedded there yeah. in the Absolutely. outward practicalities of the community well there are so many other things that we could add on that list like secular music dancing mm -hmm. and others that have been added as new laws and i think one of the saddest testimonies of the early 20th century church is that our greatest contribution is an embarrassment, both, uh, embarrassment both politically and theologically, and that is uh, Christians, zealous Christians, overzealous Christians were responsible for prohibition. So the creation of new laws as a means of defining one's spirituality or assuming that God will bless you because you are uh, zealous in that regard is what is really meant by neonomianism. So that, for instance, even if you eat in a public restaurant and you don't say grace over your food, that somehow that makes you less spiritual. Is there anything else that you guys want to throw in the pot there uh, as we close that one out and move into the next one? Not really. I guess once we get into the practicals, you know, okay. I guess we can flesh some of those things out. Okay. Well, now let's open up the one that's usually preserved. For people who have a high view of divine grace, that is mm. antinomianism. And again, kind of refresh us on what antinomianism <laughs> is. It's, it's against law. Yes. Well stated. Very succinct. <laughs> it is against law. So who usually gets that charge? Well, I tell you what, who Jesus did? got it. You know, you know, Paul did. Paul got it. I mean, I think any time that uh, justification by by faith alone uh, is preached, the charge of antinomianism is going to come with it. I think Paul shows us that in Romans. I mean, he preaches justification for five chapters, and right when he gets to chapter six, uh, he assumes uh, that his listeners are already charging him uh, with uh, the charge of antinomianism. Um, in fact, I'm going to back up and say as early as chapter three when right. he says, what shall we say then? Do we make void the law mm -hmm. of God by faith? And and how is antinomianism a charge against Christ? Or how, how do they use that? He seems to be um, driving a wedge between the religion of Moses, for one, right? John mm -hmm. chapter 5. Mm -hmm. um, he's again, seems to be against the temple or speaking against the temple. Um, so temple, Moses, uh, Sabbath keeping. Yes, Sabbath right. keeping, yes, um, yes. I mean, you go on down the list, you're eating not... Eating with sinners. Eating with sinners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hanging out with tax collectors. The greatest charge, I guess, that's that you are demon-possessed. Mm, that's right. So I guess that's what falsely accusing an antinomian, he's demon-possessed. Uh, so the reformers now, what is it about the theology? You kind of alluded to it, but what specifically is it about... Reform theology, because I would say, just as it was levied against 
the early reform, that's one of the continuing charges that we hear even today, either directly or indirectly, those who hold to the doctrine of justification by grace. Every time there's an emphasis on forensic union with Christ, legal, and what, what, legal, yeah, okay. a legal union with Christ in, in the sense that I am justified and accepted by God, not on the basis of anything I do, but on the basis of the dying and the rising of Christ for me. And that is imputed to my account. His righteousness, his sacrifice, every time that that is emphasized, then there has been the charge that you are somehow, you know, um, downplaying the, the, the moral transformation and the change and the participatory aspect of being uh, in Christ. Even within the reform, this pull yeah. has yeah. always yeah. been there. And we see it in so seventeenth uh, century. There you have folks pushing against the antinomians, mm. right? Uh, New England, um, you know, revivalism. You mm -hmm. know, eighteenth century. You have folks trying to push against antinomians. Scotland, the Mara controversy. You have folks trying to push against antinomians. And sometimes the charges could be yeah. little. That's 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 that you muddled. Bring, you, yeah, you bring up another another example. Reformed Christianity in Scotland in those areas, there was what happens in that, every generation where there's more problems. You know, the accusation is always uh, that the thought was like, man, we're too we're too high on those positional realities, and so we need to really emphasize um, you're okay. You should sleep at night because you're really zealous for. So in the midst of People trying to overcompensate for moral laxity. Um, you had these brothers known as the Merrill Brethren were saying, this uh, form of spirituality is actually um, not biblical. Your assurance does not come from how well you work out grace and how well you live in light of grace, but your assurance always comes from the objective foundation, the perfect righteousness, substitutionary death. And so they were championing that. So would you say then that the charges of antinomianism are usually leveled at two points? One, at the definition of, of, of forensic justification, because what we hold in justification, in essence, is in justification, God declares sinners to be righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. So at that point, if those who want to... Um, who, who waver against that as if you, you've got to do something yeah. yourself, they would have a problem or an issue with saying that God justifies sinners. And then secondly, where we talk about even though we are justified, declared righteous, the actuality of our lives may, in, in many areas, they don't match up. The thing is that there's a lot of different, you, you have really um, you know, pinpointed two, two ways in which this plays out. For example, thinking again of the Mara controversy, it started out uh, by this declaration that said, whoever says that for someone to be saved, to be placed in the covenant of grace, they have to forsake sin. That is wrong. And that was something that the Mara brethren <clears throat> were perfectly fine with. You don't have to forsake sin in order to be instantiated in the covenant of grace. But the minute they supported that and it was made an issue, then the whole assembly came down against them saying, that's antinomianism. What do you mean you don't have to forsake sin in right. order to be received by Christ? I think the assumption is that what we're saying is that uh, we no longer need the law. 
that law has no function whatsoever for for the believer. And that there's going to be then that's just license. They charge me. <laughs> you're just giving license for yeah. people to sin yeah. in the way then you are presenting law and gospel that what they're hearing is, oh, it's all been done for me and God receives me freely. I don't have to do anything. I can get away with anything. So, so the assumption is that if you tell people that you are a sinner and you are, if you believe in the person and work of Jesus, that without any work on your own, right. if you just right. embrace that, then you are eternally saved. The concern that people have when they hear that is that you're telling them it's okay to continue in sin. Correct. You have to come back then and ensure that doesn't happen by using then Here. devices and syllogisms as the one that was used in Puritanism. You know, true faith works. Then you have to look at your works in order to determine you're saved. And if that is the case, you have to work a whole lot to make sure that you validate that you are one of the elect and one of the saved. So that kind of syllogistic, you know, it was prevalent among mm -hmm. the reformed. And okay. it, so they think that that is the way you have to immediately, as soon as you speak of grace, right. like, yeah, let's do it. They, they understand that's the way it is. But then immediately you have to catch him. Otherwise, the faithless saints are just going to go descend into downright license and libertine ways of living. You don't understand that that faith works through love. So therefore, whenever someone begins to try to protect and promote the foundation which drives affection and which drives then behavior, we don't, we don't understand that paradigm. Forgetting that love itself and, is a and law. fear is a powerful motivator. It's yeah. going to change people. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I do think that there is, there is valid, we're talking about the invalid, but there is definitely like valid, I think, that, that hides itself and it's it's subtle you know and, well, and i want to get to that we sure, want to talk sure. about legitimate antinomianism and and that which can masquerade itself yeah. as grace we, yeah. we we can talk about that but first off when people claim well if you preach grace you're going to increase sin i think those who are are moralists in or on the other side of the argument they're going to have to prove that there's more sin in in grace camps than in works camps I think we do pretty good on the sin part of it by ourselves. Uh -huh. The issue is how we address remaining sin, the reality of remaining sin, and how we see the finished work of Christ. Is this something that we are contributing to, or is or are we brought into fellowship, not only in the resurrected life of Christ, but brought into fellowship, according to Paul's logic in Romans 6, brought into participation and fellowship with his death. So the charge of antinomianism assumes that there is no place for conduct from the part of those who talk about grace, that there is no room for conduct that is conformed to the word of God. Going back to uh, the issue of zeal without knowledge, what is it that brings death? What is the instrument of death? The law. It's the law. Yeah. So we go back to that again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's Paul like says we're the law a, kills. <clears throat> the law kills. So they want to live as if, um, you know, if, if I tell you enough what you ought to do, and if I somehow say, if you're not doing this, you're not a believer, then you're going to die to sin and live in conformity mm -hmm. with God's law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, 
be with us next time as we talk about these matters. We look forward to being with you next week on Saints and Sinners Unplugged.